1: Hello everyone, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Serena Burdick about her second novel, The Girls with No Names. Fans of the 2013 movie Philomena, and listeners who have heard last year's interview with Lisa parra about her novel The Swooping Magpie, will know about the existence of homes for unwed mothers in Ireland and Australia, respectively, that treated the young women who ended up there more as prisoners than as patients. Yet they may not know that the United States also had many such quote-unquote asylums, also called Magdalene laundries, or more honestly, penitentiaries. It's in New York's version of these institutions, or inappropriately named the House of Mercy, that the Girls with No Names opens in 1914. I lay with my cheek pressed to the floor, the cement cool against my spent rage. I'd screamed, I'd bitten and scratched. Now I was paying for it, but I didn't care. I'd do it again. Rolling onto my back, I held my hand in front of my face, but only black stared back at me. They'd left me in complete darkness. My palm throbbed where a splinter of wood had pierced it, a glorious wound of rebellion. A wash of cold air drifted across my face, and I shot upright, certain it was the ghost of one of the forgotten girls. Fear pricked the soles of my feet, turning into pins and needles nicking their way up my calves. How long would they leave me here? Would they starve me, forget about me until I began to rot and stink? I imagined Sister Gertrude dumping my wasted body into a grave next to other nameless girls. My family would never know what happened. And now, please join me in welcoming Serena Burdick. Hi, Serena. Thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. Hi, thank you for having me. Your first novel, Girl in the Afternoon, was published in 2016 and won the International Book Award for Historical Fiction in 2017. A belated congratulations on that. Um, But how did you come to write that novel? That is, what led you to writing fiction in the first place?
0: Uh, You know, I've written my whole life. I'm just a lover of stories, so I've been an avid reader and writer. I never really considered writing as a profession until I was in my late 20s. I'd pursued a career in acting. I had gone back to school and decided at a point that I just wanted to try to see if I could write a novel. <laughs> I'd spent a lot of hours just writing short stories or poetry and kind of fiddling around with words, but never something concrete. So I started it in college, late in college, and managed to complete, complete it and took many years to find an agent and edit and get it out there.
1: So what can you tell us about that first book? What was the inspiration for the story, and could you summarize just the setup for us?
0: Yeah, I studied um, 19th century English literature and really loved the you know, 1800s time period, and then got very interested in France at the time when the Impressionists were um, just coming on the scene, the art scene. I thought it was a really fascinating time in history. And so the story came out of just research of that time in history. I became intrigued with the um, impressionist Bertha Morisot, who I felt as a woman did not and does not get the recognition she deserves, and the idea of what it would be like to be a female trying to make it as an artist back then. So the premise of the book is the protagonist is a female impressionist. Um, Ultimately, though, it's a family saga that, you know, revolves around a love story and um, dramatic sort of happenings, and I think that mostly I would say that it summarizes the entrapment that women. There's an older woman, a mother character, a grandmother character, and a young woman. So the three of them play into the story in terms of what each of them were going through in their own female identities at that time in history, which were all very different. Um, and I, you know, I like to look at the struggles that women went through with the things that they were confined to, either at home or within their inability to love in the way they wanted to love or work in the way they wanted to work. Um, So I think that is mostly what it's about.
1: I realized only when I was preparing questions for the interview that there is a family link between the characters of Girl in the Afternoon, which I have to say I now really want to read and uh, those in The Girls With No Names. Can you tell us a bit about that element of your novels and how you made the decision to tell a second story about the
0: Savarets? So, a little secret. There is a first unpublished story that I wrote before I wrote uh, Girl in the Afternoon with the intention that Girl in the Afternoon would come as a second book, Uh, but that first book has never been published. And that book is also a link to the Savarets, and that was a very intentional decision. I had made that book, and there was a character in it that I really wanted to grow up, and have it sort of be this whole sort of story that links back. So that book, those two books, are um, linked a lot stronger than this. And so when I went to write this novel, um, the girls with no names. I didn't have a. I had an intention originally to do that to link them, but then when I looked at the year that I had chosen to write in and the time period, I realized that oh, this character would be the age of the mom in this story. (laughs) So I just for fun decided to just make her that character for real. No intention of when I'm reading a book, I I can't name any specific writer off the top of my head, but I know I've been reading books, and suddenly a character appears that you remember from another book. And I just find it to be a really delightful moment. So I think I really I had the intention to ha- intention to have the books stand on their own completely, but then if one reads one or the other and you make that connection, it's just a fun connection to make.
1: Yes, it was a fun connection to make. <laughs> <laughs> My own characters are constantly reappearing. I you know they <laughs> I keep meaning to say goodbye to them and then they sneak back in. <laughs>
0: like... Yeah. And I also, I love the generational kind of thing that happens and how you can see so quickly from child to then 40-year-old mother, the time in history has changed dramatically, time and place changes, but I sort of like this idea that it's uh, the same character through so much change.
1: So what drew you to the story that became The Girls With No Names?
0: That was inspired by, I had been listening to a lot of news reports of all of the Magdalene Laundries in Ireland. Um, they were coming out maybe four or five years ago. All these stories are coming out about how they didn't close till the 90s and just see this horrific stories. So I became very fascinated just with the idea of the Magdalene laundries. I originally thought I would write about something in Ireland, but then when I looked into it, I discovered there are Magdalene laundries all over the world that I don't think anyone really ever talks about. I think Australia had a whole lot and then to discover that there were, right here, um, in the United States, and then right here in New York City, I just decided that that was a pretty important thing to bring to light, but also an interesting time and place to talk about. So it was really just that institution that that started then the idea that, what story could I place around it? And a fun little thing, I've always been really fascinated with the Romani culture, and I know that they were largely in Europe. And really wanted them to be in my story, but thought, ah, oh, they weren't here. Maybe I'll just make that up. And then I researched it and found that right the time that I was going to write about, they happened to be, like, they had immigrated over and did have an encampment right there in Inwood. It was like luck. <laughs> it was like, wow, that's perfect. But I think I've, I've made the years a little later. They were there a little earlier, closer to, like, late 1800s, turn of the century. But I've jumped them ahead about 10 years. Wow, that's so special. It was a good moment. That was a fun moment when I realized, yeah, and someone said, were they really there? Because people don't consider them. It's much more of a European uh, thing people think about. And I was like, they actually were. (laughs) I researched this. And then there was a lot of writing out there on them, like their immigration here, where they went from, you know, the turn of the 19th century after how they moved around, um, So that was fun to have them actually be where I wanted them to be.
1: (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Let's start with Effie, since her story is, I think, the most important, certainly not the only story in the book. Um, How would you describe her life at the moment we meet her in Chapter 1? I'm going to skip over the prologue uh, because it's not clear then who's talking um, in terms of her past, her present, and her character.
0: She is we are introduced to her at that turn from childhood to teenage years. She's just about 13 and she, we learned very quickly has a heart condition, which is the thing that has defined her, her whole life. And people consider her weak. I think she considers herself weak, but so the story gives her that element where we sort of discover her strength as we go along and she discovers her own strength. Um, And it's a character that sort of defers to her sister, who is a bigger, more glorious sort of impression in their life than her sort of shadowy impression that she takes of herself and people see her as. Her sister,
1: Luella, has a very different personality uh, and experience. So what can you tell us about her?
0: Yeah, she's your very conventional 16-year-old. She's vivacious. She's full of energy. She's really um, the more daring wanting to break the uh, conventions of her upbringing, which were very Victorian and wealthy society, do-right atmosphere that she grew up in. And she is rebellious and wants to explore and experiment and break out. But she's just on the cusp of kind of figuring that out and figuring herself out. And she, unlike her sister, is fully healthy and and is the one who doesn't really... She's the only one who doesn't treat her sister as different, kind of never really believes her sister is as ill as everyone says she is, and uh, but in a positive way, like just kind of boosts her sister up and like, you can do that, you're fine, which her sister appreciates, wants to be more normal. Um, but she's sort of the leader of of the two of them.
1: I think we should probably emphasize, because it's very clear from very early on, that this is, we talk about a heart de- defect, but this is a condition where everybody expects Effie to die, basically, uh, at a young age. So each moment that she lives is kind of a surprise to the people around her, almost. How does that affect her, or how does that affect the novel?
0: Uh, well, I feel like it was important to give her a flaw, like a serious flaw. But also it keeps you, it makes the story could have, um, I feel like it puts the story more on edge (laughs) because everything that happens is heightened by the fact that no one really knows whether she's going to be, whether she will live or die or if she will survive. And so when she gets into the scrapes that she gets into, that just I feel like puts the reader a little bit more on the edge of their seat (laughs) and gives her and her own self and the characters around her a heightened level of, um, oh, I may not make it at all, like even, you know, where I'm trying to go in life, but even in life, you know, in general. And I think when you have a character who, I find it fascinating to, she has lived her whole life not knowing if or when she will, you know, live or die, which takes, I would imagine, Um, you have to take a really different approach to life than everyone else around you. And I liked the idea that she would take this really different approach to life in general, a far more like live in the moment approach to life.
1: It's a kind of tragic situation in the sense that um, she's, I think, what is called a blue baby. She has a hole in her heart. And um, I believe that can now be solved through surgery.
0: Very simply now, <laughs> well, not simply, but it's a single surgery usually just solves it. Yes, it's funny since writing this, I've met two people who had children who were born with this very same thing, which was, you know, upsetting when the baby was little. But they they discover it right when they're born, and then they have a, an operation pretty quickly, and it's solved. So, but I had done research. I actually spoke to a doctor, like a heart surgeon, to do the research about. Um, he helped me come up with, I needed, I needed a disease that was possibly incurable, but you could live a long time, but you didn't know when you were going to die. I, this was the, I, I had the idea of what I wanted before I knew if the disease existed. So I spoke to a surgeon, and he was like, this is probably the thing, the thing you're looking for. I was like, perfect, great.
1: Without going too far into the plot, uh, set up for us, please, the sequence of events that lead to Effie voluntarily entering the House of Mercy.
0: Well, the sisters discovered in the first chapter this um, Romani community that lives just a stone's throw from their home. And the Luella, the older sister, becomes really intrigued with this lifestyle, with these people. She's a dancer, and the music element of their community that is so exciting but different from her very strict ballet background uh, intrigues her enough where she sort of drags her sister, sneaks out of the house up to this encampment. And that's sort of the start of their breaking away from their home, but then they discover a secret about their dad that's very upsetting and angering, and they also, the House of Mercy has been this mythological, frightening thing in young girls' lives, like, ooh, if you misbehave, there's this possibility, and her father is threatened to, you know, stick the older sister in there if she's not behaving the way he thinks she should be. So I set up a lot of questions, about what's happened, the sister um, just becomes more and more rebellious as the story goes on before Effie ends committing herself
1: and this is a major shock for Effie because she's been living a fairly comfortable life in New York. Um, what happens to her when she what does she find when she gets into the house of mercy?
0: The House of Mercy. There were not a lot of wealthy, the wealthy families didn't really put their kids in there. When I did the like, actual research, it was more an institution that would end up just by default of having, you know, girls who were on the street or girls who were accused of prostitution or families who just didn't want to take care of or couldn't take care of their children would find excuses to put them in there. So I don't actually know of any accounts of wealthy girls that were put in there. So I, that was a, you know, a bit of a stretch But when she gets in there, she does find a community of women from like all over New York, different ethnicities, different um, beliefs, religious beliefs, and a whole way of like a rough and tough sort of environment that she has never encountered before, which opens her eyes to a whole different world. I didn't find it a stretch um,
1: for two reasons. The first one is that as you mentioned implicitly, the House of Mercy is being used as a kind of bogeyman to keep the girls under control. So Effie, who's only 13, wouldn't know that her dad might never actually do that. And then the second is that it's not her parents who send her there. She arranges with someone who himself appears to be less well-off to go there.
0: Yeah, it was, and I had actually read a real, I did a lot of um, sleuthing, there were a lot of New York Times articles about real girls who had gone in or gone out and escaped or were released. And I found a story of one woman who committed herself to escape an abusive husband. And I thought, Oh, I guess you could do that. You'd commit yourself. But at Effie's age, she would have needed a father figure to do that. But I didn't think it was totally, it clearly wasn't unheard of that you could very few women did it because no one wanted to be in there. It was a horrible environment, but I suppose this one was trying to save her life by committing herself.
1: And Effie does find a father figure, however temporary. Um,
0: yes, exactly. She was able to figure that out. Which
1: then makes it harder for her to get out, of course, but she doesn't That's realize right. that because yes. she's 13. Um, another major character whom Effie meets there is Mabel Winter, uh, whose interaction with Effie is life-changing in several ways. How does she end up in the House of Mercy?
0: So Mabel,
1: do you want me to go back from like sort of the beginning of her story? Um, as much as you want to tell us,
0: yes. Yeah. Um, so she has uh, – she lives outside of New York. She has not experienced the city as a child growing up. And when her father leaves, she and her mother end up in New York. And they live in the tenements and have a difficult go of it. And you see the struggles of a single woman in the city. And then they have to work. And so you get a window into the work conditions in New York City at that time for women and she commits a really horrendous crime and she ends up in the house of mercy too similarly to the woman who to sort of protect herself she goes in under a false name and to escape this crime she's committed and hopefully not get caught for it and
1: tell us a bit about her personality and her relationship with effie
0: Uh, she's pretty hardened by the time Effie gets there. She, I don't think is in the beginning and the experiences that she goes through harden her more and more and she becomes a really tough survival character. She's a bit older than Effie. So she takes on a little bit of the sister role, but not nearly as loving as the sister was. And they just connect in sort of a mean girl way at first. Um, they're going to use, she, she has another friend in there and the two of them sort of bully and buddy up, and they're kind of vindictive. They plan to sort of use Effie, but Effie, this is where Effie kind of starts to show in the House of Mercy her savvy a little. She's ignorant and she's weak. That's how everyone considers her, a sort of non-threatening young girl. But then as as you go along, this super tough, dominating girl, they sort of start to come together, and you sort of see that they each begin to respect each other in their own way. And one softens and one becomes a little tougher and they sort of make their way together eventually.
1: Jeanne, who is Effie's mother, is the third character who, like Effie and Mabel, gets to tell her own story about these events. Her life is also overturned by her daughter's disappearance and by the secret um, that her husband has had, uh, which contributes to the disappearance. Why did you include her point of view and what can you tell us about her?
0: So when I was originally setting out to write the story, Mabel actually didn't exist. I didn't have that character. It was going to just be told from Jean's perspective, the mother, and Effie's perspective. Um, and then when Mabel appeared, I realized I had to now tell it from three perspectives, which sort of threw off the chapter, how I was going like, to organize the chapters. But I felt it was necessary to tell the mother's point of view because when Effie goes to the House of Mercy, she's confused. But I needed a side that clarified for the reader what was really going on so that you are aware that this character is gotten it wrong and doesn't know what she's doing and then what's really going on on the other side. So it felt important to have that perspective told of what was happening outside the House of Mercy while Effie is stuck in the House of Mercy. Um, and she grew. The mother was, it was a harder, that was a harder character for me to really nail down how she it and worked within the nar- narration of the story. Um, and I sort of kept adding chapters of her as I went along.
1: And she is the link to the family in your previous novel. Yes, she is. So she came from France.
0: Yes, yeah, so she's French. I liked that element that she was and she was a dancer. Um, and a bit of her history is told, you know, through a brother appears who wasn't in the first novel because he was born later. <laughs> Isn't that annoying
1: when people show up that you didn't write them like, in because you didn't know they existed? <laughs> I know. I was
0: like, oh, wait. Okay, so you have to be – We, I think we left her in the novel when she was three or something. So a lot in my previous book revolved around her, but she was just a baby and a kid. So she wasn't really a a huge presence personality yet in that novel.
1: Well, that's fortunate. I mean, if she'd been 15 and didn't you – know, I know. Then I <laughs> it wouldn't have worked out. I gather the book was originally called Not Without My Sister. Um, I got that from some of the promotional material, which has since been corrected. It seems like an appropriate title, though, because the novel is, at least in my view, uh, primarily about relationships between women, uh, especially the two sisters, Effie and Luella, but also Effie and Mabel, Effie and Jean, uh, Effie and the woman who run the House of Mercy, and so on. Would you agree? And if so, what would you like us to understand about the, these relationships?
0: Yeah, I think the relationships between mother-daughter, sister-sister are, well, the relationships between anyone within families is always complicated and interesting to dive into. I love the idea, the sense where you feel like your family is, you want to be connected to them and you want independence from them. And so you identify, but you want to push away. And I also really loved the idea of, the Victorian mother, that transformation I've found, I can't even believe, I can't imagine what it would have been like for women who were raised in 1885 to 1990s and then of century and have to figure out how to raise daughters in 1915 to 1920. It's just this amazing shift in history where, so I like the idea that this mother, the relationship between her and her children, trying to figure out the confusion within that huge switch of where you were brought up and how you move through to the next generation. <clears throat> and the sister connection is strong for me. I have a sister. Um, that's kind of where I draw with my, <laughs> I only have one. And I feel like those, that is a really powerful relationship when you just have two sisters together and what that sort of means.
1: How would you describe uh, Jean's relationship with her daughters? It's, it seems kind of complex to me, which of course is good in a novel.
0: Yeah, to both of them. Well, when you have a daughter who you think may die at any moment, how do you keep going through life, loving them, letting them do their own thing, not wanting to overprotect? Um, so that is, I feel like that complication is a struggle for Jean through the whole thing. And then her older daughter, who she loves but struggles because she's the one pushing against her in all things without giving too much away is the way that sort of guilt or blame is put on someone you love a lot, but then you feel like they're at fault for something that you don't know how to sort of work with that fault that you want to put onto them as your child. So I think it's a tricky one. That really, I think mother-daughter relationships always are. Um, and generational. I know. I think I also like the generational thing, but just it, I think through every generation the generation that a mother grew up in and then what her daughter is being raised in, it always changes so drastically that it's a struggle, I think, in any, whatever time period you're going to decide to write in, but maybe more so some time periods than others. And I think that's that for me was at the focal point of this, that huge transformation of the suffragette movement, you know, the the independence that was starting to happen, just the sheer change of clothing, that change for me, it was kind of an important part of this story.
1: Well, it's I think certain ages also, I mean, 13 and 16 are probably the times when girls get along with their mothers worse than at any other time in their lives. Yeah, exactly.
0: True. And then the father relationship that comes in, like his, I feel like it's also important an important, we don't hear his perspective, but I feel like that is an important and confusing one as well how they're now seeing men, what men are supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be treated by them, um, what's expected. Uh, So that also, I feel like, the liberties men could take and what women could not and were expected to accept. Seeing that through the eyes of young women at that time who are starting to think differently um, and even question it, which I think before that women questioned very little, at least openly. The idea that you could openly question something like that at that time felt important to me as well.
1: And they kind of blame their mother for not questioning uh, early on in the book.
0: They do. I think that's, again, that generational thing where she wouldn't, you, you didn't, you, your husband did what he wanted to do and you accepted it. End of story. And these young girls just don't, That's to them, that's madness. That's not what the society is doing anymore. Not necessarily. So that's kind of where that, yeah, it upsets them that it makes their mother weak, or um, and they don't understand it, and I think it angers them. And she doesn't understand. I also liked that I wanted to show her as strong. That in her mind, it's not weakness that you accept it. It's actually harder to accept it, but that's what you're supposed to do. So the strength comes from not questioning. And having to live with it, which takes a lot more strength sometimes than fighting back and, you know, doing whatever you want to do is actually, in her Jean's opinion, a much easier thing to do than to accept the condition you are stuck in. Um, So that battle of sort of strength and weakness and different points of view is also an interesting one to me. Yes,
1: it is very interesting. Um, two other elements of the story that I think are worth bringing out are the presence in the House of Mercy, which is kind of presented as a, a home for women who aren't acting right, um, mostly sexually but not exclusively. But there are also girls there who are much too young to be unwed mothers, and yet the um, the outside authorities are for the most part, completely indifferent to the treatment that these women and girls are receiving within the institution, which is the second element, the indifference of the authorities and the presence there of women who don't really, how should we put it in modern terms, meet the program, or something like that.
0: Yeah, not at all. Uh, yeah, the young, the young girls, I know, it was an interesting thing to try to research that. So there were technically two houses up there. One was called the Inwood House. And one was the House of Mercy. The Inwood House was for women over the age of 18. And the House of Mercy was for girls under. So um, I think just girls that were on the street or couldn't be taken care of also were just put in there. And it was considered charitable. They were nuns. It was a um, religious-run organization. So you took children in, but they didn't treat them, and then you abused them and made them work. Um and there was very there was very little schooling. I think there was some schooling for the younger ones, and there weren't a lot of younger ones in there. It was mostly girls of teen, teen years up till eighteen in that particular house. And they, yeah, they were put in there for anything. A father could bring them for saying, "I don't like the way she was looking at a, a, a man," or they could make it up. I think too, if people didn't want to take care of their children. Um, they brought them and said that they needed to be reformed and taught the proper ways of being in the world. And the nuns took them in gladly, and they worked some. It was amazing What, how much money the church has made off of these women. They took in laundry services that they charged for. And they it was ultimately slave labor for very young girls that were then released on whatever timeline they felt they felt that they were done or wanted to let them out. And a lot of girls did escape. Like escaping and riots were definitely something that was very intriguing to read about. They were constant. And then the, when they would escape, the stories that they would, that would come out of what they were escaping were horrible stories. So,
1: And yet nothing was done. No. Goodness, no. For
0: young women then. <laughs> they were happy to put them in there. And they didn't think, I mean, that was also their lot, that line of, um, I was just listening to something where children were not considered, there was no, like, child abuse was not considered a thing. If you were a parent, you were allowed to hate your kid. There, was, there were more laws for abusive animals than there were for abusive children. They were, like, the property of parents or the nuns or whomever. They were just property, and there was nothing to protect them in, like, the laws until, I don't know when, but definitely not 1913. Uh, so they could do what they wanted with them, and they, they had no beating them, starving them. It was a choice to discipline them. It was like whatever you want to do to discipline children was allowed.
1: We've talked a lot about details. Uh, What would you like readers to take away from the girls with no names?
0: Oh, I just love people to get into a good story. (laughs) Whatever is fully engrossing, entertaining. If they cry, I'm always pretty satisfied. I love to be... Uh, to feel that you've gotten really caught up in someone's emotions, happy or sad, hopeful, all of these things that sort of consume you in any story you're in. I want them to take away. Also, I do hope to bring to light sort of that time in history. Um, and I also really think it's important to remember that somewhere here in New York City, you know, 100 years ago, which isn't really that long, these things were going on, and so the struggle that women have had from then until now feels really important to me. And, you know, I dedicate my book to the women who are in the House of Mercy. I feel like their stories really were sort of never told or heard, and they kind of just disappear and become meaningless. So it does feel sort of hopeful that one could give fictional voice to something that went on in reality.
1: This novel is releasing on January 7th, uh, which is next week from the time when we're talking. Are you already working
0: on something new? I have just finished something, just sent it off on New Year's Day to my editor, uh, a book that should be coming out next winter. It is a book about, totally different, and none of my characters appear (laughs) in this one. Um, It's about a, it's based on a true story of a real-life Cuban actress. Um. I am friends with her daughter, who's in her 70s, and years ago her daughter sort of gave me this story, and I have kept it in my back pocket, something that I would really want to research and write about. So I have done that, and hopefully that will be out next year.
1: That sounds wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I've really
0: enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it as well.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. A podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Serena Burdick about the Girls with No Names. Find out more about her at www.serenaburdick.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad free, invite only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.